Good evening, y'all. How you doing? Better than we deserve? Amen. So good to see you. I, they're telling me the storm is coming, man. We need to rebuke the storm. We cannot miss any more school days. The kids are, we, they're going to be in like school in the middle of, you know, end of June with these makeup days. We cannot keep missing school days. I keep telling the teachers, we'll, we'll rent a bus and we'll all come pick them up and bring them here. And we'll get, you know, we'll pick our kids up ourselves. We'll bring them, you know. But, uh, man, you know, where I'm from in Rochester, we didn't cancel snow unless it was like a foot of snow. Or school, excuse me, unless it was like a foot of snow. Boy, you get like three inches, four inches, everybody's like, ah. It's not even snowing yet. And you look online and like WJL, like 90% like all the schools have closed. I'm like, wow, you guys are good. I need to get that same, you know, magic thing you had. No, don't do that. I'm going to read the word of God. Uh, well, God bless you. Good to see you all. And praise the Lord you're with us here this evening. And I'm, I'm so glad that you are with us here to come and uh, sit under the word of God. How awesome was that to go back to uh, Maranatha? I don't know if you guys know the history of Calvary Chapel. It was on Maranatha music. You know, it was these young people, right? That would be, you know, like teenagers and and they came in and uh you know there were all these folks buttoned up in three-piece suits sitting in a sanctuary and small little church in Costa Mesa and you know 100 people you know it's hard to believe that was the original size of the church and, and these young people come in and they they fall in love with Jesus and they just start singing and God breaks out what we have in the history books now is the latest and the greatest revival of all time. As a matter of fact, Pastor Joe Foch has been interviewed several times in Philly by UPenn and all the universities out there. What was it that the Calvary Chapel movement did? And he says, man, I, I don't know. We just love Jesus. And the young people came and we all just sang and it was simple. And I just thought, man, when I, when I, it took me back, which he, Jen, you know, the Lord led Jen and the guys and, and Brian and then start worshiping that way. I said, that's what we need. In this time with such pain and hurt and, you know, confusion and everything with the pandemic and everything, we need to worship. And it needs to be simple, just right vertical worship. So I was so blessed to hear that tonight. I hope all of you guys were blessed as well. It doesn't have to be all this pomp and circumstances and a rock concert. It's, it can be just worship. And God loves that and he receives that. Um, so praise the Lord for that. Um, Go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 10. We've come as far as 2 Samuel chapter 10. And parents, again, I want to encourage you. I think we have like 20 or plus kids signed up now for the children's movie night. I want to encourage you guys, go ahead and uh, sign up. It's in the, it'll be on Friday. We have, uh, we're blessed with having someone that does our, our parking lot for snow removal. Phenomenal job. I'm, I can assure you he'll have it cleared out. It'll be we're blessed, better than we deserve. So um, 
you know, it'll be ready for Friday night for the kids to come in and have that important time of fellowship together, growing together. And I, parents, I really encourage you to bring the kids out for that and let them just have a time of fellowship, man. Be like-minded, okay? Well, if we've come as far as uh, 2 Samuel chapter 10, you know, last we left uh, Mep, he was with David and he had just received this amazing blessing because he was told that he's going to sit at the, the, the king's table and he's going to be able to have this food and he's going to have this time of fellowship. And God, it was just a beautiful example showing what Jesus Christ has done for you and I as he has welcomed us into his family. We're heirs and co-heirs with him. And we too are invited to that table. In Revelation chapter 19, we are all invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Okay, we're going to be at that wedding feast and it's going to be the greatest communion ever, okay? And I, I'm so excited. And it just reminds me that, well, as we go into chapter 10, if I had to sort of describe to you what I, what I believe, uh, you know, spirit-driven, uh, that the chapter is talking about, it's all about the motives. If I could say that, uh, even chapter 11 to some extent, it really comes down to all about the motives. How many people have heard people say it's all about the choices, right? I, my brother and I, we used to joke around and say, it's all about the choices. What are you doing? Like your choices. Well, chapter 10, it's really all about the motives. Because if you read this carefully, you'll begin to understand David's motives. And then you're going to see a group of men that are going to, a king specifically, that's going to judge David's motives and he's going to get it wrong. And because he gets it wrong, 40,000 people will die. 40,000. And Jesus Christ is very clear. And we'll look at this here this morning. Or this evening, excuse me. I went, that doesn't sound right. This evening, that we're not to judge others' motives. Right? Uh, hold your finger here, even before we begin our reading. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you would, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just as a way to study this biblically. If you look right down around verse 33, you know, who we surround ourselves with and the counsel that we take has an impact on our lives, a direct impact. If you look at verse 33, it says, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Do you see that? Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame as he was speaking to the church in Corinth, Pastor Paul there, the Apostle Paul. You know, as we're going to study scripture, Jesus Christ himself has warned us to be careful about judging motives. No one can ever judge the heart. We are fruit inspectors. We're told to look at the tree, what bears fruit on the tree. But we can never judge the motive of the heart. Only God knows the heart. And I think that requires a certain level of humility for humanity to approach every individual in every situation. And I pray to God that we do these things in righteousness. And if so doing, we think the best of others, never the worst. 
until, be pro until proven otherwise, we think the best of others. That's actually the biblical axiom. And so I just, I wanted to sort of begin that way here. We're going to pray, understanding what a godly response should be, understanding. And we're going to read David uh, responds in a very wonderful way. And we're going to read about a, a king of the people of Ammon, Hanan, and well, we'll get there in a minute. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your holy word, and Lord, thank you for this exhortation tonight. Lord, this is a good word for me to always be careful, Lord, not to ever think I or anyone else. We, we know the motives of another individual. Lord, we, we need to ask what's in the heart and allow people to have the opportunity to explain, Lord, their hearts. It's like you said, Jesus, chapter 7 of Matthew, Lord, you, you warned us, don't do these things. Don't judge this way. God, I pray that if there's any of us here tonight that has a, a judgmental heart, trying to judge motives, God, that we would lay these things down and never pick them up again, that, Lord, you would free us of this disease, Lord, because it does put us at dis-ease. And Jesus, we pray you would speak just volumes into our hearts and minds here tonight as we come in to learn more about you, to sup with you, to follow you, to submit and surrender to your perfect will and be blessed in rest and peace because of it. So we ask, Lord, have your way in us here tonight, Jesus Christ. We love you, our Lord. We gather because of you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. It says in chapter 10, verse 1 of 2 Samuel, it happened after this, after what? After he had talked to Map and, you know, uh, David had settled that issue by going and repaying kindness and honoring the covenant that he had actually made with Jonathan. And we talked about that last week. He says, you know, okay, now after that was settled, after this, that the king of the people of Ammon died. And Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. Now, we, we really have no biblical record of this, okay, other than what we see here before us. You can't find this area where it goes through and it talks about this other king or what he's about to promise. We simply are taking it on David's account here. David saying that, you know, um, I will show kindness, you know, to the son of uh, Nashab, right, his father showed kindness to me. We, we, we don't have a, a way to go and look this anywhere else in Scripture. I want to be clear about that. But clearly we have a firsthand account from David, King David here, that this happened. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servant to comfort him concerning his father. And David, the servant, came, and David's servant came into the land of the people of Ammon. So what did he want to do? What was his motive? I said it, this chapter is all about the motives. What was David's motive? His motive was to send these men to go see this new king to pay respects to his father for the kindness that his father had shown David. Everybody with me in tracking? Honest, righteous motives, right? Just so we, we can see that clearly. And the princes of the people of Ammon... <laughs> 
said to Hanan the Lord. Now remember we began our study here in 1 Corinthians 15, 33 and 34. Uh, judging. It's important to surround yourself with good counselors. Well, this man didn't have good counselors. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan the Lord, do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? Do you see? It's all about the motives. This man is perceiving David's motives, but he's perceiving them incorrectly. He's judging David's heart incorrectly. And because of this, as we're going to read in the future passages here in verses 14 through 19, as we go on, we're going to see the forms of battle plan. They're going to go to war and 40,000 men are going to die. And do you know another thing that's a part of the problem here is we're going to read this? There's certain axioms that we see God teaching us in his word. First one is not to judge hearts. The second one is if you get it wrong, confess and repent and get it right. Let's not be so prideful that we're afraid to admit we're wrong. And therefore, we don't want to step back into the right direction because everybody else is going to see that that's us acknowledging we made a mistake or we judged wrong or we made error. Again, there was an opportunity, as we're going to read here in verses 5 through 9, where he could have done that. This king and those counselors could have redirected, but they don't. And again, 40,000 people die. Turn to, it just reminds me of it, turn to Psalm 1, please. Psalm 1. There's a clear difference between the way of righteousness and the way of the ungodly. And, and, they, and they're not in any way to be confused. We can't get those wrong, actually, in Scripture, that is. I mean, this is a beautiful wisdom psalm. It's, a, it's certainly a poetry by music. Psalm 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. It just... So you guys, this is a separate word. If some of you are turning there, it just remi- reminded me as I turned here. Don't think that every word of God can't be used to draw someone to Jesus Christ. The Psalms. I remember being in Belize. I was in Central America and I was on a missions trip. And I remember reading, and it just came to me now, and I, I read this Psalm. And at the end of this Psalm, I had a man from one of the local villages come for me, and he gave his life to Jesus. God's word is so powerful. It really is sharper than any two-edged sword. I mean, it pierces right into the marrow. And, and so don't, don't ever under, you know, as I'm turning here to the Psalms, I'm thinking, you know, okay, Lord, what do you have for us? What don't you have for us? Blessed, and by the way, that's plural, the idea here, blessings. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, did you catch that? Who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Hey, you know, that man, that king we just read about in 2 Samuel, he had surrounded himself with ungodly men. Nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in the law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water 
that brings forth its fruit in its season. God's perfect timing. Whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does, it shall prosper. But the ungodly, they're not so. They are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. It's beautiful, right? They call this an antithetical parallelism. If you want a new theology term for it, you're there tonight. And the idea is, is it's comparing, in parallel, it's comparing God's you know, righteousness, blessing, from what it is for a man that's unrighteous. And you can clearly see the difference. It even affects who we surround ourselves with and who we keep company with and the things that we do. Now, this, let me be very clear. This isn't saying that we can't go eat with sinners and that we can't invest in others that are lost to draw them to Christ. That's not what this is saying, okay? Because I get some folks that take the extreme, oh boy, I can't have a dinner with somebody that's in sin. That's not what this is saying. But this is saying that who you receive your counsel from, it, it's very important how they live their lives. If you're counseling others, if you're ministering to others, it's very important the things you do, the things you speak, the things you say, the wisdom you receive in counsel. Is it from someone that's living righteously, living under the Lord God's leading? Or is it somebody that is leading in a way that draws people to themselves to do it their way, man's wisdom? Well, as we turn back here, we certainly see that Hanan was listening to these princes of the Ammon people. So again, counsel matters who it's from. Do you think in verse 3 that David really honors his father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city and spy out to overthrow it? Now, I'm going to ask you all a simple question. Do you believe that this man at this point is thinking the best, or these princes, let me say it that way, are they thinking the best of David? Is there, any, is there anybody here that would argue that they're thinking the best of King David at this moment? Or are they immediately thinking the worst? Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Judge not, these are the words of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, our Lord. Judge not that you not be judged. For with what you judge, or your judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what you measure you use, it will be measured back unto you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how do you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from my own eye, or your eye, and look at a plank in your own eye? And Jesus uses in verse 5 a very strong word. He says, hypocrite. He didn't mince words, did he? He says, hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly. So when we're judging others, we can't even see clearly. Did you catch that? We're not seeing things correctly because we're so busy looking at another sin that we don't even see our own. And because of that, it blurs our vision and our capacity to understand what is right and what is wrong. 
the lens, the eye, is the gate to the heart. And if the heart is wicked, Jesus said it's not what a man eats that defiles a man. It's what comes out of him that defiles him, right? These are foundational principles and axioms. And Jesus Christ said, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly and remove the speck from your brother's eyes. Do not give what is holy to dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces. If somebody's not ready to receive, you Bible-thumping them will not give them spiritual 2020. You investing in them and loving them and meeting them where they are? Oh my, what can't God do through that? Well, back to chapter 10 here. So he goes and he says, clearly they've come and they're going to overthrow it. They're not thinking the best of King David. We just read Psalm 1 through 6. They're clearly unrighteous. They're not thinking from a righteous perspective. We just looked at Matthew 7, direct violation of Messiah Jesus, his words, and not to judge. And I know it's easy for us to jump on uh, uh, Hanan there and these princes, but I know that I can't look more than, you know, a foot in a mirror from me and see my own reflection and recognize that I can be just as judgmental if I'm walking in the flesh and I'm not walking in the spirit. I possess the capacity and the carnality within me to do those things unless I am yielded to the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. And I must recognize that. Because the minute I think that I won't fall or I'm not susceptible is the moment in Scripture, again, Corinthians, that I will fall. Romans even describes it, that I will fall. Pride. Therefore, Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half of their beards. These men that David sent down. Now, this isn't like, hey, we're going to help you out. We're going to give you a half cut, you know, half deal. It's a half deal Tuesday at the barber. No. He cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks and sent them away. Let, let me, let me uh, explain to you what shaving off half the beard. What can men typically do? Not all men. I think of my son, Power. He jokes around. He says, where am I going to get my full beard? You know, and it, it's going to come in. You know, the guys we joke around. You know, you grow a full beard in, right? And it's one of the things that, you know, has to do with our masculinity, if I can say that. Men, we, we can grow full beards. You know, not all of us, but some of us can grow full beards. I, I'm like, I want to be gentle on some of you men that cannot grow full beards. Like, it's okay. We can pray through it. No. Uh, the, I'm, I'm just having fun with you a little bit. The reality is, is it's, a, it's a masculine tendency, right? That's what we see, and that's the idea here. They're directly tacking not only David, but these men's masculinity. They're trying to emasculate them. Okay, that's exactly what the first thing they're doing. And then the second thing is, please remember in that day, they wore robes. And their robes would come down to slightly below their knee by the, almost the tip of their calf. Sort of like middle tip of the calf. When you cut the robe and you cut it by the hip, because that's where they're talking about cutting this, in effect, the front part would still be there. But what it did is on the backside, it would expose you so that your butt's hanging out. I don't have a great way to say that. I was going to think coolly. I was trying to, you know, I was really stretching there. And I'm like, say it like it is. And I know, you know, today there's some people that like to wear their pants around their, 
you know, their knees and ankles. And so this would have been cool 2,000 years ago. No, thousands of years ago. No, no, this is different. They were literally, again, it, this would have been an incredible dishonor and embarrassment, a dishonor to your family to be seen that way, and an embarrassment and, and, and a total lack of respect to King David. And that's exactly what they're doing here. This is an insult of their manhood, okay? When they told David he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait in Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Isn't David awesome? David recognizes, he comes out, he sees them. He sees half the beard cut. He sees, you know, I'm sure he brings a change of clothing for them. He says, look, don't, don't come back into Jerusalem like this. Don't, don't allow yourself, you know, stay here for a period of time. Maybe it took a month you know, a few weeks at least, they were going to have to be away from their families, away from their loved ones, but they, they could, you know, in some way keep that honor within their family. And that was the idea of what King David wanted to do. He wanted to do all things peacefully. That's just a beautiful heart. That's, that's a heart, again, it's all about the motives. What's David's motive? David is in no way trying to embarrass these men, nor is he, he chastising them. How could you let this happen? You're, you know, you're my men, you know, I'm the king, you know, none of that. There's no pride here from David this way. Just an, just an earnest care for the men that he sent there to pay respect to the father of this, uh, or to this king that his father had died. Just a beautiful heart. But you do understand, you know, uh, I think back and I'm wrecked by some of the Looney Tune cartoons, okay, growing up. When uh, Bugs Bunny, uh, you, you, you remember he would turn and uh, I forget the other guys, Elmer's foe or whatever. He says, you do realize this means war right? What this actually was, was a declaration of war by them doing this. And that's what it's going to ensue here, a war. When all, when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, and please note the word he chose here, that the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Maka, 1,000 men, and from Ishtob, 12,000 men. So somewhere around 33,000 total. Now, at this point, they could have recognized it. It says, when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, there was a point here where they could have said, stop, look what we've done. And, and the natural thing would have been, okay, we need to admit that we are wrong. We should seek reconciliation and maybe... Maybe this friendship or this ally that we had in King David can ensue. But instead of taking that moment to recognize their misstep, their misfortune, the, the things that they've done, they turn around and they dig the ditch deeper because they don't want to admit in their pride that they were wrong. They discredited these men and they created a declaration of war and they're willing to go to war rather than just to admit they're wrong. How many of us tonight, in, in, in real, please, let's be honest with ourselves. Even in our homes, with our children, with our friends, how many times do we dig in when it would be just easier to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I've made a mistake. I, I misspoke. Or you know, I'm sorry, my, my temper got away from me or something. It's so easy 
uh, to argue a point, to, to, to forget that winning the battle, you lose the war. You lose the war. And these men, they were going to lose the war here. They might have won the battle of humiliation at this moment, but they're going to lose the war. It's just a good axiom. I encourage you to highlight this in your Bibles and, and let this be a, a, just an example for you and I to never let this come into our marriages, into our friendships, into our houses, relationships with our children. Let us always err on the side of humility rather than pride. I know that pleases our Father in heaven when we, when we do that. Verse 7, now when David heard of it, he sent Joab, that's his general, if you remember, and all the army of the mighty men, okay? Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zobah, Beth, Rehob, Ishtab, and Makkah were by themselves in the field. When Joab saw that the battle line was against him, before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best here. And he put them in battle array against the Syrians. So what we're seeing happen, okay, is Joab recognizes this battle array that's happening before him. But he also recognizes that these are not all Ammonites, that there are Syrians, that there are other people that are present as part of the other armies that they're, they're basically uh, mercenaries. Do you know what mercenaries are? Mercenaries are those that will fight for money in a cause. These men have become mercenaries, and so they turn around and they're joining this King Hanan's army as mercenaries. Now, they have no other vested interest in this other than what they're getting paid from this king. And clearly, Joab recognizes this because he said against the Syrians— he knows it's not just uh, the Ammonites. So he lines himself up, and rather than backing, he, puts, he sees their array, and he likewise, he puts himself in battle array and his troops, these mighty men. And now they're looking at this, okay? And it's kind of this moment of a standoff. Who's going to make the first move? What's going to happen? Is somebody going to issue a retreat? Well, we're going to see very quickly that Israel is vested in this, because of King David and the honor of the people, as well as, you know, God telling them before that, you know, there's this wickedness in the land and they were to remove the wickedness that way. But these Syrians and these men that were called in, right, from Zobah and other places, they're there just for the money. So it's going to be very interesting how quick they see this battle array and go, forget this, we're out of here. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Look at verse 10. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. So also, let me point out, there's two different groups. So you would think Joab would have put himself in front of the Ammonites. But actually what Joab does is he puts himself in front of the Syrians, which were the mercenaries, right? And then the Ammonites... Abishai, who's Joab's brother, another general that way, he's in front of the Ammonites who have sort of, if I could say it, skin in the game. So he puts them there, and Joab goes with his mighty men to the other side, like I said, in battle array, and he's looking at the mercenaries and going, you want to do this? We're going to do this. 
but they've got no investment or skin in the game other than being paid here, okay? So it's interesting how uh, you could say the chess match is being set up here because you would have thought Joab would have done what? He would have put his men in front of Ammon because those were the people that were directly insulting King David. But Joab knew that if he put his men and these mighty men in front of the mercenaries, they're going to get out. They're going to flee. He, he, he had an idea. You can clearly see he was very strategic in how he set this up. It's brilliant. Then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come to help you. That's his battle plan. And it's flexible, right? Be of good courage. Did you hear that? This is, this is Joab, right? So clearly we learned something about Joab. This is a man that, that knows God or knows the word of God, right? We haven't seen that much from Joab in regards to these things, right? We know that he went after, you know, uh, to avenge his brother's death, right? We read back a few chapters. What did he turn around and do? He went and took Abner out, right? And did it in a way that was, uh, you know, murder for all intents and purposes. That wasn't defense. It was murder, and we don't hear anything about him talking about the Lord or anything up to this point. But here we read, be of good courage and let us be strong for our people in the cities of our God. Did you catch that? I like that. We see this spiritual commitment to the battle of the Lord. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and all the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. Because again, they're mercenaries. There's no skin in the game. When the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. Now, please remember, the city would have been walled at this time. When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Then Hadiazar sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river, and they came to Helam, and Shobach, the commander of Hadiazar's army, went before them. So now what's happening? Let me explain as we're reading this. What's happening at this point is Ammon's turning around, right? And they're looking at what just happened. The Syrians see this. They turn around. They know they're defeated by uh, Israel that way. They're coming back, and now their pride is hurt. Their pride is hurt that Israel's standing strong, and their pride is hurt. So now all of a sudden, you know what? We're going to turn around, and we're going to fight. We're going to go back because now they're like, hey, what just happened to us? We just ran, you know, we just, we just retreated like that, and all of a sudden, you know, you know. Well, everybody's going to hear about this. Look what happened to us. We just got chased out of here and not a single sword had been lifted at this point. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan and came to Helam. That's Ammon, by the way. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians. And struck Shobach, the commander of the army who died there. And when all the king who <clears throat> when all the kings who were servants to Hadazar saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. Did you see that? So many dead, so many lives lost. All because of the motives. It's all about the motives, the motives of the heart. Look what the 
the motive and judgmental heart can do. It can cause such destruction and death. Such destruction and death. Oh my. It happened in the spring. Now, we should, you know, pause there. Why is that a big deal? What's, what's going on in the spring? Well, typically, when you look at... Uh, When you look at kings, in the wintertime, they being winter, obviously not the best time to go out to battle, they would come back and they would rest. They would gather their troops. All the soldiers would come in. They'd visit family. They would rest. They would kind of build up, you know, get stronger and get ready to go back out. Come springtime, they would go back out like that and they would begin to resume the battle where they had left off right before winter. So the first thing that we see here, and, and I want to remind you this, God has given King David a calling, hasn't he? He's king. And as kings, in those days, they always went out to battle with their troops. That was the calling. But David has a different idea. And this chapter is one of the more difficult chapters, I imagine, in David's life when you look back and he looks back at this. Because it all begins with really a simple, a simple disobedience of not answering the call of God. Because had David gone out with his troops where he belonged, he never would have been in temptation's way. Do you understand that? Do you see that? And that's why we're giving that detail right in verse 1. It happened in the spring. It, it, the, the Holy Spirit's telling us this happened. David should never have been there. He had a calling to be out with his men. Why wasn't he answering the calling of God? Every one of us has a calling of God upon our lives, don't we? We should never walk in disobedience to that. We have to be obedient to the calling of God in our lives, regardless of how we feel, regardless of what we think or what's going on in our lives. We must be obedient. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So often we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 here because it's such a vital passage in Corinthians where Paul tells us that everything that we're reading in the Old Testament, which is why we study the whole Old Testament, you know, because of the counsel of God, that, that it's an example for us, right? Look at verse 6. Now, these things become our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. He, he's, he's saying, you, we all learn from these things. But what I really want to draw your attention down to is right around verse 11. Now, all these things happen to them as examples as they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come, right? There's a warning here, instruction and exhortation. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. What's he telling us? What are we learning here from Pastor Paul? Be careful. Be careful. Pride is a door to the fall, right? It's something that we're all susceptible to. He says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands. In other words, you trust in your own abilities. You think you can stand. There's nothing we should trust in our own abilities at all. That's a complete contrary teaching to the world, which 
will say, believe in yourself, you can do it. You know, all these, you know, self-encouragement, self-worth type teachings. When we look at our identity in scripture, it's all centered around Jesus. So our strength, our understanding, everything about us, the power, anything that we have comes from Christ. So if we think higher than ourselves than we ought, we're going to fall. That's the, really the ingredients of pride. Now, please also look at, at verse 13, because I like that 12 comes before 13, because it begins with pride. And then once we don't acknowledge this, and we look to ourselves, then we see that no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. Did you all just hear that? There's not a single temptation that any of us have ever had in here, any of you, any of me, Anybody, anybody in the world that isn't common to any other man or woman. That's very important. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Now, he didn't say trial. He said temptation. So easy, uh, this has been misquoted as, well, God won't put you in a trial if you can't get through it, right? Oh, that's not what my scripture says. No, no, no. No, there's there's there are times that trials can do you in, so to speak. But this temptation, what he's saying is that whatever we're being tempted by, that God is not going to allow us to be put into a temptation beyond what we're able to bear. So then, why do we fall? Why do we fail that temptation? Well, we'd have to go to we don't have time tonight, but we'd have to go to Romans six and read also that we're free. And, uh, from sin and the law, and because of that, we have free will and choice, no longer under bondage as we used to be. Therefore, when we sin, we sin of our own accord. So when I sin, I don't look to the devil. I don't look to a demonic realm. I don't look to any of those things. I don't, I don't look to my dog and say, my dog made me do it. I must take personal responsibility for my sin, and I must communicate that to God and ask for forgiveness because I have all the capacity within me not to sin. Read your scripture. I have all the capacity. I'm a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have been made new. Read Romans 6. I have the capacity. But when I choose to not walk in the spirit, I will fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5.16. I want you to, why am I bringing this up? Because King David, he's about to walk into a temptation here. And the question is, is what's he doing at the wrong place at the wrong time? And did he have to do these things? Was, it, was he set up? Was it put before him by, by Satan himself to tempt David so that David had no way out as so often it gets portrayed incorrectly? Or was this a man who has struggled with lust as we've watched his entire account, multiple wives, multiple concubines. He simply has, if you, if you want to say this is where he has struggled in his walk. So many things David does just, I mean, I don't want to pick on David. He does a wonderful job walking, being obedient to the Lord. In this particular capacity, he ignores the uh, commandment of Deuteronomy chapter 17, right around verse 17, when God says you are not to have multiple wives. 
Men, this should speak to us in here. We, we have no business looking, not, no business looking at pornography, no business looking at that junk that takes your eyes and off of your wife, off of the woman that God has placed in your life. Ladies, the same thing. There should be no desire to look at somebody. God has given you your husband and, and vice versa, satisfy each other to, to be together that way. He goes on to say, but with the temptation, we'll also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That's the word of God. That's the word of the Lord. So now let's turn back. And as we read chapter 11 here, and we start in this passage tonight, and we'll probably get through, you know, most of chapter 11 here this evening. The idea here that if I had to, again, chapter 10 was all about the motives, right? Chapter 11, the capacity to sin is in us. The capacity to sin is in us. If we don't recognize that capacity, that's just what we read in 1 Corinthians 10. We don't recognize we're in a place where we could fall. Anyone in here has the capacity to murder? Let me just speak to me. I have the capacity to murder, okay? I have the capacity to lust, I don't need any help from the devil. I don't need any help from anyone else, the world, the flesh, or the devil. My carnality is strong enough. I don't need help from anything and anyone else in that matter. And I think if we're all being honest, we all relate to that in different capacities in our lives, certain areas in our lives. It happened in the spring of the year at that time when the kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, and here it is. But David remained at Jerusalem. One of the darkest moments of David's life. He doesn't answer the call that God has placed on him. He's disobedient. We don't know why it doesn't tell us. It doesn't say he was ill. It doesn't say anything like that. For whatever reason, David just wasn't going to answer the call that God had before him. Yet we know that, as we read in the Psalms, he knew God was trustworthy. He knew God was true. This wasn't a lack of understanding. David, at this point, is about 50 years old. He's not a 20-year-old young man. He's a 50-year-old man. He's seen the hand of the Lord move that way. Then it happened just like that. I underlined that in, in my Bible. Then it happened. Is that where it began, Low? Is this where it began? Is this where it happened? Or, or did it happen when David was taking multiple wives and lusting and having concubines and lusting and not honoring a God said one man, one woman for life? Is this where it began or did David already have a problem up to this point and never brought it before the Lord? Maybe that happens to us too. And then it happened. One evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof. Idle time. Idle time. 
of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Friends, can I say this to you tonight? It's very important, very, very important. Be careful where you're standing. Be careful where you stand. Just think about that for a minute. Just meditate on that. What do I mean, be careful where you're standing? We are all just one step away from being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Being disobedient, not following and answering the calling of God for our lives. And it takes one moment. David goes out. He's looking out. Maybe this is the first time. Maybe it isn't. We're not told in Scripture, and I don't think we need to read into that. But the reality is he goes out there and he sees a woman that is bathing. David should have walked right back in. First of all, he shouldn't have been there to begin with. He should have been out with his men in battle. He should have walked right back in. Right back in the room, right back in the the courtyard, right back in his house that way. So we see the next error. God is so gracious to us. He warns us. He says, be careful. The minute you think you can handle the situation, you actually can't. Don't put yourself in that situation to begin with. That's the first thing we read that in 1 Corinthians 10. The second step is we don't honor God's obedience for our lives. That's the second thing we see. The third thing now happens. We turn around. We're not careful where we're standing. We're not careful what we're doing. And next thing you know, we find ourselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. And rather than taking a look and going, nope, I don't belong here. We look around a little bit. We window shop. We get comfortable. Because we can control it, of course, right? Which goes back to 1 Corinthians 10. And it's this vicious loop that begins to ensue and happen. And it's, it's every single time. This, this is this temptation, the idea of sin. It's the same thing over and over again. You, you can replace it, lost with another sin, and it's the same idea. God doesn't allow you to go into any temptation that he doesn't provide a way out. He doesn't set you up for failure. You can't say, God, it's your fault. It's never God's fault. But if we ignore those three things, we're almost certainly doomed because we've, we've blown past the warning flags. We've blown past the stop signs. We've run the red light. You know how many men, how many pastors in ministry? We just heard of one recently. Some of you read that blow through the warnings. Marriage is destroyed because you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, alone with someone that you don't belong alone with. You know, turn to Romans chapter 11, verse 29.
I'm always reminded by this. I actually just had a meeting with someone today, and, and this very topic came up, and it's fresh in my mind. The calling of God is irrevocable. Why do I establish that? Why am I sharing that with you? Because David's calling, because I, I, I know there's somebody in here tonight thinking, well, wait a minute, Pastor Matt, you're being really hard on King David here. Look, look, I'm going to be sweet to him in another chapter. But, but right now, I think we have to be honest with the scriptures and let it do a work in our heart and protect us, because that's what it's supposed to do. Protect us as an example. If you look down, it clearly tells us in verse 29 of chapter 11, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Are there times when we may be disqualified? Yeah, if if a pastor turns around and he commits the sin of adultery, my, my, my opinion is he's removed. He's immediately removed because of the harm and the capacity he has to do harm to somebody in the flock, because this is family. And if that's your wife or your husband, or what have you like that, they need to be ministered to. And they're going to look at that guy that's harmed them, and they're not going to hear from the word of the Lord. They're going to be hurt. Does that mean that a year, two, three, whatever the Lord has, five years, the, Lord, the man is repentant, he's gotten right with God, he's had a time to work through these things with pastoral counseling, and he's in a different place, again, with a lot of guards put in place, that this man then can come back into ministry? Of course, I'm not saying he's done forever. We just read the gifts of God and the calling are irrevocable. So there's no get out of jail card for David. It's not as though David says, well, you know, my calling, I'm a king. I did everything I'm supposed to do. No, no, no. The gifts and the calling are irrevocable. So he looks from this roof and he sees this woman bathing. Again, he should have turned around. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David went and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Right then and there. Right then and there, it should have stopped. He knows who Uriah is. We'll learn about that more in verse 6. He already knows Uriah because Uriah is one of his mighty men. But, but what happens here? We're going to get introduced to something called self-deception tonight. Look at James chapter 1, verse 22, please. James chapter 1, verse 22 tells us, but be doers of the word and, and not, here's only, deceiving yourselves. David knew the law. He knew Deuteronomy 17, 17. He heard it. He just didn't do it because at that moment, David didn't think it applied to him. He, he didn't think it applied to him at that moment. You see, that's the introduction to all sin. Somehow we think we're above it or God is okay with what we're doing. Right, I'm doing. He's, he's okay with that. Then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity. That means her menstrual cycle monthly. And she returned to her house. And the woman conceived... So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. 
You see, I, I really believe the opportunity here in Scripture is for everyone to learn from this, both Bathsheba's and both David's, both men and women. Because Bathsheba, certainly she wasn't, it doesn't imply in any capacity in the Hebrew that she was raped. There's nothing on that account. Okay? Her husband's out at war, fighting for King David and the dynasty of Israel. And I don't care if it's the king or not. That, to me, is a respecter of persons. And in the book of James, it's very clear we're not to be respecters of persons. If somebody, and I don't care who they are, asks you to sin deliberately, you have every right to tell them no. And I think of our young people, you know, dating, going on a date, courting, whatever you do, and you're in a position like that, you walk right out of there. You're put in a position where, oh, I love you. If you love me, really? If he loved you and he loved God more than he loved you, he would never disgrace you that way because you're his daughter. You're the daughter of the king. You're his daughter, I meant to say. The daughter of the king. No, he loves himself more than he loves you and vice versa today because we're living in a completely different time than when I grew up. And it goes both ways today. But again, what are you doing alone in a place like that where those things can happen? Then David said to Joab, can you imagine? Saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Now, you know what David could have done? We just read about this in chapter 10. We just saw this problem with the people of Ammon. They let pride get in the way, and they didn't do what? They didn't repent. Take it and turn it. And now it's focused back at David, and David finds himself in the very same circumstance. And what does he do? The very same thing the people of Ammon did. What did God tell us in his holy word? Turn to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. God is so adamant and clear. If there's anybody here tonight that is, um, that is struggling with sin or there's something going on in your life or there's maybe you've been wrestling with sin for a long time and, and you're wondering, Lord, can you, can, would you really forgive me? I mean, is it too late? God says that if we would confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He also tells us if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. That's why I look at you week after week and I say, let's just be very honest with each other. No one here has arrived. Everyone here is dealing with something on this level, although it may not be lust, whether it's pride or something else here, whether it's a quick speech and anger and things come out of your mouth that you ought not to say and then have to later retract it because you, you create a wake of destruction. Every one of us here, every one of us 
needs to bring these things before our Lord and ask him to examine our hearts and to remove these things from us and to liberate us and free us from our carnality and sin. Because in Romans 6, he says he's done it and he desires to do it. Well, here we are. He goes and he calls Uriah the Hittite and Joab sent Uriah to David here. And again, being one of his mighty men, that means he was one of the best of 37 fighters. Later, we're going to read that's expanded to about 80. But right now, his mighty men are only 37. This is the special ops. This is the SEAL team, okay? This is the special forces. These are the guys that you send in. And he's one of the 37. If you want to look at a list, you can look at 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 8 through 39. Or you can look at 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verses 10 through 47. You know, many of them were loyal followers that stayed with David. They've known him for 20 plus years. Uriah has probably known him for 20 plus years as he was in the wilderness, as he was fleeing, and they were all with David. So I just want you to understand what he's doing here, right? Freeing from Saul. I mean, you think about Uriah's closeness to David. I mean, look where it says he lived. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah. And when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Job was doing, and the people were doing the war progress. He was making conversation. We are going to read that he says, Go to your house, go down to your house, and it's going to be close. What that tells us is that he was very high up because David would surround himself closest to the temple, closest to the house of God, closest to where he was around that area. At this time, there is no temple. We, we understand that. But what would be, that's how you did it with your armies. You would you put yourself here and then you had your armies closest to you so that they could respond if there was ever an emergency. So Uriah is very, very close because he's close in proximity to the palace where David lived, or in this particular case at this time, in the house that was built for David. There was a house close to him. Obviously, David could stand up on the porch and look out and see Uriah's wife. So I don't, it doesn't tell us he had a telescope or binoculars, right? He's clearly using, you know, his eyesight. So this man is very close, very near and dear to him. Just think about who we're talking about here. He, he's this man that's a, on the front lines of battle, carrying out David's orders. If David would have confessed his sin to Uriah, I believe due to Uriah's loyalty and love, he would have forgiven David. But because of David's pride, Uriah will never have a chance. And just as we learned in chapter 10, when pride gets in the way and we don't seek repentance, God gives us opportunity to do that. He did that for the people of Ammon. What came? A wake of destruction and death. We are going to see the very same thing in David. His child. We're going to see it in his sons, three in particular, four total. Because God will say, the sword will not leave your family. That way we'll read that. The wake of destruction that's going to occur because of this. You know, adultery is a sin that has a stain. And that stain stays with you for a long time. 
David had a chance to seek forgiveness with Uriah. And again, like I said, I believe because of Uriah's loyalty to David, he would have forgiven him. I really believe he would have. But we'll never know, and neither will David. Now I'm going to ask you to consider a question here tonight. Does, does power corrupt? I think most of us would say, well, if you mean power makes people more prone to arrogance, ill treatment of others, tyranny, then I think most of us would agree that it does. Look at Proverbs chapter 18, verse 23. God gives us this beautiful pearl. Proverbs 18, 23 says, The poor man uses entreaties, but the rich man answers roughly. In other words, with power, the rich man, he can turn around and he can answer roughly. But the poor man, he must use entreaties. It's a, it's a different response, right? So power really can corrupt because you begin to think that you can have whatever you want without respect to others. And more importantly, as we see here, without respect to God. Without respect to God. Just think about how heavy that is, man. King David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was progressing. Again, no additional data. Just And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. You know, just think about what is he doing here? He's making small talk. He's trying to Get your eye comfortable. Go wash your feet. Go into your house. We know what's going to happen. Many of us have read this account. He wants him to go and get comfortable. He's going to have some, you know, go lie with your wife. Because what? rather than, you know, homologeo, right? Homologeo, that word in the Hebrew means to confess. Rather than homologeo, rather than confessing, he'd rather think up and invent a new way to frame or to remove himself from harm. Again, another low point, to trick a man to raise your child. Also pulling Bathsheba into the sin that both of them had have to live with this. This is what he was doing. Do you see how pride can just destroy your perception? You think you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. And you don't care about who you heard, and you're not thinking about, certainly not acting like a king. This is not typical David at all. But friends, again, I, I look out with my own eyes at all of us here, myself first. Every one of us has the capacity to do this tonight. Every one of us has the capacity to do this very same thing. And if we don't acknowledge that, if we don't honor that, then we are doomed to make the same mistake that's written before us. These things are examples for us. And again, not just into the sin of lust. It says, from the king's house and gift for food from the king followed him. So he's hoping that everybody will see that Uriah is going with a blessing from David because ultimately he should be at the front lines. But he's saying, hey... But look at verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. What do, what do we see in Uriah? 
loyalty, faithfulness. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Did, did you catch what he did? First of all, Uriah's a what? He's a Hittite. And what did he just do? He just referenced God in the tabernacle, which tells us he's a Jewish proselyte. He's a convert to Judaism. He's a believer. Right? He's a believer. And he points out the fact that everybody else is serving. My, these men are fighting. And you want me to do what? You want me to not answering the call that God has on my life because, David, you didn't answer the call God has on yours? Good counsel, huh? Just like Hannon, right? The king, when we saw it, he received bad counsel and he listened to it. And he's trying to do what? He's trying to trap and ensnare and tempt David. Or excuse me, I meant to say tempt Uriah. But God always provides a way out of the temptation so that you are able. And what does he do? Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink? And he, he knows exactly what, this isn't hidden language. He knows exactly what's happening here. He's saying, all right, I, you want me to go home and lie with my wife? Is that what you want me to do? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. I won't be trapped. No, you won't, Uriah, but David will. Then David said to Uriah, wait here today also and tomorrow. I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now, when David called him, he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. What's he trying to do? Lower his conviction. And at evening, he went out to lie in his bed with the servants of his Lord. He did not go down to his house. Do you realize this man has more character than David is displaying at this present point? In the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Did, did you catch that? Uriah is such a good man that he can trust him that he won't even open the letter that he's sending his death sentence to the general in the front line. Because Uriah being on the SEAL Team 1, right, is right at the front line there. He's right out in the front. He trusted David. He trusted his king. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. This is an even lower point, right? He basically gives him a death sentence. This is just flat out cold, flat out cold. So it was while Job, uh, Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there was valiant men. So first of all, we learned that he doesn't, Joab doesn't even listen to the idea that David said because it was so ridiculous what David was saying in such desperation. He's basically saying, put him out there and then everybody else run from him when the men, when the men start to come. Every, I mean, you're special forces, right? You don't run from anybody. You die and you die in battle. It's honorable. It's honorable. But instead of doing that, we're all to turn back. Are you crazy? Nobody's going to listen. Joab's not going to do that. And neither are any of the other guys going to do that. But David's like, yeah, yeah, just... <laughs> 
I, I don't know. I mean, I, it's so dis disgraceful. And I just imagine it that, the, you know, like you're going to put them up there and, okay, guys, run. We're going to run. What are you talking about? We're not running anywhere. But Joab's, I mean, David's not, he's not thinking. That's the problem. He's not seeking God. He can't see clearly because once again, he's clouded. It's all about David. It's all about Bathsheba and he's being caught in his sin. But Joab, he's not going to listen to this, right? He, he has no idea about what, what David did either. He, maybe, jo, maybe Joab thinks, hey, this guy's a traitor. Maybe he's done something stupid. And that's why I got these orders. Can you imagine when he later finds out what King David did? Again, another low point in David's life. Because your sin always finds you out. Our Father in heaven sees everything. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. So here's what he did. He basically said, okay, guys, you go out at the front flank. You're going to go out and attack, and you, know, you guys are going to go over here, and he put, he put uh, Uriah the Hittite right out in front. And not only does Uriah die, but all these other men die too. And Joab did that so that it wouldn't seem obvious that anybody was singling out Uriah because that would be just ridiculous. And so even Joab is protecting David because David can't even think straight on these things. But again, I ask you the question, when you don't fulfill your calling and you aren't obedient to the calling God has for you, when you turn around, right, and you willfully don't, you don't repent, you don't confess your sin, you don't get right, and then third, you continue in your sin because of pride, right? What's going to happen? As we read in chapter 10, death whether it's on the spiritual uh, plane or on the physical plane. And Uriah and these other men died because of the unfaithfulness of David. Again, a terrible low point in his life. The murder of many. And, and, and why would we think it would be any different today for you and I? That if we give into a sin and we try to cover, why do we think somehow that's not going to find us out or follow us as well? that this death and destruction is not going to follow us. It will. It will. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger saying, when, when you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Again, not a smart military strategy. Throw these guys out in the front. They're going to get slaughtered. Did you not know that they would shoot you from the wall, right? He goes in in verse 21. He even says, you know, back to Abimelech. Do you remember him? Because he kills 70 of his brothers, right? That way it was Judges chapter 9, verses 50 through 54. Remember a woman comes over and drops the millstone right on Abimelech and he dies. Judges 9, 50 through 54. Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerobash, Bersheth, what, it was not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. He says, when you go back and tell him this, you throw that detail in there and David's going to be like, oh, oh okay. Because otherwise David would be like, what are you doing? Why would you ever do that? So the messenger went and came and told David, all that Joab had sent him. And the messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance to the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants 
and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Now, I want you to think what we're going to read here in these last few verses for tonight. Do you realize the great satisfaction that comes over David right now? Then in the midst of his sin, this great satisfaction that he got away with it, or so he thinks, because you never get away with it. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Doab, Do not let this thing displease you. Hey, men die in war. Again, horrible, deplorable. For the sword devours one as well as another. It happens, it happens. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. He was so misguided that he, he, couldn't, he couldn't even begin to even empathize or even sympathize that this is another man's wife and that this wife just lost her husband. And these men that all died, just these wives lost their husband and the destruction and the pain that that causes from losing your wife or your husband. Some of you are widowed. You understand that kind of pain. To have somebody inflict that, the selfishness, the pride that that takes. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. He said, that's terrible that that happened. Fix it now. Destroy them. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. Some say maybe a week went by. That David didn't even, you know, a proper mourning period. And what's he do? He, he again, another little moment in David's life. What is David going to do here? David is going to try to place himself and position himself to be the hero. Because think about this. Bathsheba just lost her husband in war. In those days, there is no social security. There is no inheritance. There's nothing like that to provide. That would be a very dangerous thing for a woman to lose a husband like this. Okay, David's about 50, even if Bathsheba's younger and they're in their 30s. It didn't bode well for her. How was she... Where would she live? What was going to happen to her? There was no security for her. So what does David do? David says, you know what? I'm going to marry her because I'm going to take care of Uriah's wife because that's the right thing to do. And what's that do to all the people? It points him out to be what? The hero. Do you really see how deplorable and despicable this is? If you study this, I mean, really, that's what's happening here. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. So clearly, what do we also learn here? Because it's going to be nine months before chapter 12 begins, right? Because she was pregnant. He deals with Uriah right away. And then, obviously, it says, end when her son is born, because we're going to read in chapter 12. At this point, he's, he's going to be born. And then when he's born, God, you know, God's going to pronounce the judgment upon David. So somehow nine months went by, maybe a little less, okay? What did God do? God gave every opportunity to David by pointing it out. We'll read it next week in chapter 12. Pointing out the opportunity for David to repent 
and get right with God. Aren't you glad that's how God works? He didn't come out and expose David in front of everybody so that everybody would have known and David would have been immediately. He says, no. He says, David, this is wrong. David, this is wrong. You, you need to repent from these. He was, you know, constantly probably going to David and trying, you know, now you start, David, this is wrong. But the thing that David had done, and then we see it here and we're going to close here, Displease the Lord. You know, the reality is you can't hide sin. And there's always a consequence or a result to that. But instead, David thought it was more important to present himself as the hero to the people. Please read ahead. If the Lord should cherry next Wednesday, we'll go through chapter 12 and 13. It's a sobering chapter, right? Chapter, you, you think about chapter 10 and 11. We get a lens of looking at motives. We get this idea and this darkest moment with King David. And yet, when you look at their issue of both little sins, they're both steeped in pride. They both didn't take time to confess and repent and get right with God. And because of that, a, just a surge of destruction comes in. That could have all been prevented, whether it was the 40,000 in Ammon or whether it was uh, these men with Uriah that were killed on the front line. I hope our sin, my sin, your sin, I hope our sin disgusts us. Because the wake of the destruction that it creates in the lives of people we love we just need to seek Jesus and, and, be, and get right with him. And Lord, if there's things in our lives that we've done, let us just lay them at your feet, confess them, get right, because God is giving us that time. He gave David nine months to deal with this privately. And then because David didn't, God will. And he's going to send in the prophet Nathan to go directly to David. And you know how he's going to do it? In some ways, he's going to ensnare David the way that David ensnared Uriah. Because as Jesus told, what you measure out and judge somebody else, that will what? Be measured back unto you. God's word always returns true. Let this be a warning for us. Let us be an exhortation for us tonight in the way we live our lives, in every matter we handle and everything we do. Amen? Will you stand and pray with me? I'm glad the snow's not till, you know, starting until 2 a.m. I could have kept you another hour, Amen. right? Amen. Father, we thank you for your holy word here this evening. Lord, thank you for pouring out your truth. And Lord, what a, what a sobering chapter. God, I pray that if there's anybody here tonight or anybody hears this on the radio or even at home or uh, online or, Lord, and there's anybody that's been wrestling with sin, maybe, maybe there's somebody, Lord, that has sin in their lives that's unconfessed, Jesus. Maybe you've been dealing or prodding, poking at their heart to get right. And Lord, maybe they don't know how to do it or they've been struggling. And Lord, it's come to a head. Jesus, I pray that uh, you will just ever so gently speak with your still small voice into the heart of that individual, Lord. And they will can 
confess and they will ask and seek repentance. And there will be right relationship, which where there was once broken. And God, I pray that even though I know you'll forgive the sin, Lord, I pray the consequence, uh, Lord, will be bearable. And I pray most importantly that, God, if they would be faithful to come forward, Lord, and, and to deal with this before you, that, Lord, the destruction and the death that would ensue, Lord, would be minimalized, or not at all, God. Because you're a good God, and you, you have so much grace and love for your children. Lord, I know you want to set these folks free, or this individual free tonight. I pray that there'll be no more holding back. And that they'll realize that uh, you are faithful and just to forgive every sin, Lord. And God, I also pray a protection for all of us here tonight that, Lord, we know we're always at the door, the doorpost, the doorstop, Lord. At any one moment, we can, we could be standing in the wrong place, just as David was. God, we pray and ask for you to protect us I pray a protection all the pastors here, Lord, all the elders, all those in staff and ministry, the teachers, the children, the students. Lord, I pray for the flock here. Lord, that there would never be in a compromising situation, that you would keep us holy and without blemish, Lord, spotless, able to be presented to you as a, a chaste, holy bride. And I pray, God, that we will receive this exhortation tonight and be on guard, Lord, because we know when we receive a word like this that often the temptation will follow, whatever it looks like. God, just have your way in us. Protect us. And may we always be looking for your way out of every single temptation that falls before us, Jesus. We pray this blessing upon your people here tonight, your security upon your people here tonight and your victory upon your people here tonight. I ask and pray all of this in your holy name, Jesus Christ. And all God's people pray, amen. God bless you all. I love you all. Be blessed in Christ tonight.